Tonight on The Readout. The Honorable Jim Jordan of the state of Ohio has received 199. The Honorable Hakeem Jeffries of the state of New York has received 212. John Boehner of the state of Ohio has received one. <laughs> Look at that smile. It's going about that way. Democrats totally united while Republicans are casting protest votes for the speaker. And tonight, the nomination of the unqualified Jim Jordan is circling the drain. My friend and colleague Rachel Maddow joins me right here on that embarrassing spectacle. Her new book, Prequel, An American Fight Against Fascism, and so much more. But we begin tonight with the profound difference between the normal way of becoming House Speaker and what Jim Jordan is doing, using MAGA tactics to threaten his way into the Speaker's office. It has been 15 days since Kevin McCarthy was deposed by his party's MAGA wing, and Jim Jordan is still trying to fill his tiny, tiny little shoes. But here's the thing. House Speakers, at least the recent ones, get the job in very traditional ways, by building relationships, rising through the ranks, with a little cajoling here and there, time and experience. That is what builds a speaker. Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi was a prodigious fundraiser for fellow Democrats and an unparalleled vote counter before becoming the first female speaker. Tip O'Neill was so popular, a colleague said he had no enemies in the House. John Boehner, well, he was a cash machine for Republicans. So much so that when he was in leadership, he was questioned by colleagues and apologized for handing out tobacco pack checks on the House floor. Even Kevin McCarthy, despite his many, 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 many faults, is very good at hauling in money for Republicans. Then there's Jim Jordan, who's asking his colleagues for a promotion and giving them nothing to show for it, when all he's done as a member is scream and fight. As Hayes Brown writes for MSNBC, there are three main jobs members of Congress have, writing and passing laws, providing a check and balance on the other branches, and serving their constituents. Jordan, amazingly, is bad at all three. In fact, while nominating Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries, Congressman Pete Aguilar called out Jordan's many flaws and reminded us who has actually received the most votes on 17 ballots this year. 212 to 200. No amount of election denying is going to take away from those vote totals. The Speaker of the House must be a legislator. And the gentleman from Ohio falls short in that regard. He supports an extreme agenda and is hell-bent on banning abortion nationwide. Gutting Medicare, gutting Social Security, and giving cover to January 6th attackers. Jordan failed to win the speaker's gavel for a second time today, getting just 199 votes, fewer than he received in the first ballot yesterday. And it's pretty easy to see why his Trump-style public bullying effort through right-wing media. Fox's Sean Hannity has been personally lobbying Jordan holdouts. And Axios revealed a note that a Hannity producer emailed to Republican congressional staffers asking why their bosses weren't supporting Jordan. So how's the intimidation effort going for Jim Jordan's vote count? Well, Arkansas Congressman Steve Womack told The Washington Post that his staff has been cussed out. They've been threatened. It's been nonstop. Most of them are out-of-state calls. Two other Republicans, Kay Granger and Jen Kiggings, both tweeted about how threats and intimidation would not be changing their votes. 
But the most appalling might be text messages sent to the wife of Nebraska's Don Bacon saying, why is your husband causing chaos by not supporting Jim Jordan? I thought he was a team player and your husband will never hold elected office again. That worked so well, Don Bacon voted for Kevin McCarthy. The reality is that all of Jim Jordan's tactics, whether it's screaming in committee meetings or bullying his colleagues into submission, revolve around one person, Donald J. Trump. But those tactics don't work for anyone else except Donald Trump, as evidenced by Jordan's diminishing support for House Speaker. He'll give it another try tomorrow. Joining me now is NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent Ali Vitali and Tara Setmeyer, former advisor to the Lincoln Project, a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and former Republican communications director. We are not reversing those because we're she, she is on the right track <laughs> no. now. Uh, Ali, I do want to go to you first because the the threats uh, to me are the most uh, sort of revealing uh, and also a disturbing part of this, uh, because that has been the tactic that Jim Jordan is using. There's a representative named Marionette Miller Meeks. She's released a statement yeah. about receiving death threats after switching her vote against Jim Jordan. Here's what she said. However, since my vote in support of Chairwoman Granger, um, I have received credible death threats and a barrage of threatening <clears throat> calls. The proper authorities have been notified and my office is cooperating fully. One thing I cannot stomach or support is a bully. What the hell is going on on the Hill? Look, this is just happening in the last few minutes that Congresswoman Miller Meeks is saying she's gotten credible death threats and threatening calls since she flipped her vote yesterday from Jordan to today voting for Chairwoman Kay Granger, which is less a vote about Granger and more a vote about Miller Meeks just trying to throw her support behind someone who isn't Jim Jordan. She also references in that statement that she's gotten calls to her office that say she should be voting for Jordan. She's gotten calls to her office saying that they need to find a conservative consensus candidate and now that's what she's calling for in this statement. I think when you look at the fact that threats have been going across the board, you talk about Don Bacon, uh, Carlos Jimenez, someone else who voted against Jordan, now Marionette Miller-Meeks, Jen Kiggins. All of these names are, of course, part of a public list because the way that they vote in the House is public. But it's also something that Turning Point Action, a conservative grassroots group that's very aligned with Donald Trump, has tweeted urging their followers to reach out to them, light up their phone lines. I'm not saying that this is the only reason, but it was pointed out to me by a Republican operative that these things don't just happen in a vacuum. I would also point out that Jordan's spokesperson just in the last few minutes says that this is abhorrent and he condemns the fact that threats are being leveraged. But nevertheless, they are. And by the way, let me just point out that Matt Gates for Congress, uh, he sent out a letter that says, uh, hi, this is Matt Gates. We're inches from electing Speaker Jim Jordan. But rhinos are working with radical Democrats like AOC, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib to block Jim Jordan from becoming Speaker. Matt Gates claims the email was sent by a vendor without his approval. But he is sending out these messages um, and are other members pointing the finger at him. Um, he is the one who triggered all of this by, uh, you know, triggering the motion to vacate. Is he getting any blowback for the threats his fellow members are receiving? Not that I can tell. I mean, McCarthy did condemn Gates for fundraising off of this. Whether or not it was his fault, I don't actually know. But Gates is not someone who was ever here to make new friends by motioning to vacate against McCarthy. And I think that most people that are murmuring behind his back and in the media saying, this is why we're here, are the exact same people that were never too keen on Matt Gates anyway. So I'm not sure there was ever going to be, be a permission structure where Matt Gates sort of gets his from within the conference for putting them in this situation. They're frustrated with him then. They're frustrated with him now. I don't know that it's any different. 
Yeah. Tara, I mean, you, you worked on the Hill. Have you ever heard of a television, cable television host, Sean Hannity and his producers personally lobbying for who should be speaker? No, uh, this is all very new. This is all the era of Trumpism, uh, where the entertainment, the political entertainment complex here seems to rule the day, not governing, not the Constitution, not what's in the best interest of the American people. This is just further evidence of the influence that Fox News has had, um, and not in a good way. I, I just, it's, I mean, back in the day when I was on the Hill, did we collaborate with, with Fox News producers on policy stories? Yes. Was there ever a campaign to, to threaten members of Congress over the speaker's uh, vote? No, because Republicans had it together back then. I mean, you had a couple of rabble-rousers here and there, but for the most part, the Republicans could govern. This is absolute insanity. And I tell you right now, the winner here, just from a politically, you know, political perspective, mm -hmm. it's the Democrats. Going into the election next year, they should use this chaos and they should use Jim Jordan um, as the cudgel and as the villain, the way that they used, we did back in the day, Nancy Pelosi, and the way the Republicans now use the squad. Content associate every single member that voted for Jim Jordan whether it was the first, second, or third round, or whenever they voted for them, if they cast a vote and clapped for Jim Jordan, you tie them together and his extremism and his loyalty to MAGA. This Now, that's the political, um, cynical side of things. In the meantime, the country suffers because you have a major party that can't get its act together, and we have the world on fire. So this is something I think that people really should take a look at and make a decision. Is this the type of politics we want? where you have members of Congress threatening each other. By the way, welcome to our world. Never mm. Trumpers like me and those of us who have been outspoken against this, this MAGA scourge, we've gotten those types of threats for years to the point where when I used to work over at another network, I used to have to have armed security guards escort me in and out of the building when I would go on air because of the level of threats I used to get for speaking the truth about Donald Trump and MAGA. So now they're getting a taste of their own medicine. And maybe, maybe now enough is enough. I don't know. What is it going to take? Well, Allie, you know, you, you are on the Hill talking with these Republicans. I mean, at some point, you know, the, the, the sort of less far right wing Republicans have to make a choice. Right. And there's been a lot of talk. I mean, Jamie Raskin was uh, on with Chris Hayes last night, floating names of people who aren't in Congress, which is actually yeah. allowed. Um, people like Liz Cheney, <clears throat> Mitt Romney, Senator Angus King, they said could work. Uh, Jim Jordan has been trying to assuage some of the doubts. I mean, being speaker, a lot of the job is fundraising. He doesn't do that well either. And so he's not got anything to bring to the table. He can't ask, he can't promise people anything because what people don't want is him. Is there, is there any attempt to maybe cobble together an idea of a consensus speaker that maybe some Democrats could vote for? Because Hakeem Jeffries is actually capable of delivering votes. Yeah, look, I think the political fundraising concerns are real. We should just highlight that and underscore it because it is important. McCarthy was a machine on fundraising and money. Scalise, frankly, would have been too. Jordan really is lacking in that department. When you think about this idea of a consensus candidate, I appreciate Chairman Raskin's suggestions. I don't think that Liz Cheney would get any votes. Mitt Romney and <laughs> Angus King, same. But I have heard from some Democrats who have floated other names of people who are currently in the House 
And Hakeem Jeffries himself, the top Democrat, has said there are members of this Republican Party who they could find to be palatable and almost partners. They're not talking about this as a coalition government, at least not in any real kind of a sense. What they're likely talking about here is giving Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry some extra powers that he may not have right now to actually just run the floor. And I'm not talking about this for the next year and a half or through the end of the Congress. I'm talking about this through maybe November 17th, which is the day that the government set to shut down, or maybe through the end of the year. Then they would come back and actually try to figure out what a new speakership would look like. Democrats are not under any illusion that they're going to get a Democrat here. They don't think that, and that's not what they're pushing for. They're pushing for a Republican who is not Jim Jordan, who, in their (laughs) words, is not an extreme insurrectionist sympathizer. And instead, they're floating people's names like Steve Womack, uh, Tom Cole, veteran people who know how this building works, who are a little bit more moderate in their stances. I'm not saying it's going to happen. But I'm saying yeah. they're open to it. Real quick, let me play Tom. Let me play uh, Tom Cole praising Jim Jordan's willingness to cut Social Security. Roll him. <laughs> but unlike any other speaker we've had, he's had the courage to talk about a long-term plan and to get at the real drivers of debt. And we all know what they are. We all know it's Social Security. We all know it's Medicare. We all know it's Medicaid. This is the guy that wants to create a debt commission, a bipartisan debt commission and get at the roots of our spending problem. Tara, do the Republicans just want to lose? So the answer is, put the guy in who's going to cut Social Security and Medicare? Okay, so all the senior citizens are going to vote against them. What are they doing? I mean, the campaign ads write themselves. Somebody please clip that and run a campaign ad on it over and over and over again. I mean, well, however you feel about the merits of that argument, that now's not the time for that. And you could probably see, we call them the Biden 18, the 18 Republicans who uh, uh, won in Biden districts, districts that yeah, Biden yeah. won in, in, in 2020. Like, you could just see them, oh my God, shut up. Because they don't, it's bad enough that they're put in this position where they have to vote for Jim Jordan, which 12 <laughs> of them did in the first round, so which yeah. is outrageous. So I hope that their opponents hammer them with that. But now they have to justify cutting Social Security and and, and Medicare as somehow that's a, a good policy idea for them going into 2024. It's a mess. And um, I, I'm curious to see how this comes to a conclusion. Um, but in the meantime, the country suffers. It, to say nothing of the insurrection and some of those former wrestlers doing interviews. They're on TV. I'm going to try to maybe book some of them myself. Uh, Ali Vitale and Tara Setmeyer. Look, I mean, this is what they've created. Thank you both, ladies. Uh, coming up on the readout next. President Biden in Israel assures Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of America's support while offering aid to suffering civilians in Gaza. The readout continues after this. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. 
Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. You can't look at what has happened here to your mothers, your fathers, your grandparents, sons, daughters, children, even babies, and not scream out for justice. Justice must be done. But I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. President Biden arrived in Israel after a deadly Gaza hospital blast fueled protests across the Middle East. The Palestinian health ministry said 471 people were killed in what it claimed was a targeted Israeli bombing of Al-Ahi Baptist Hospital in central Gaza. Israel has insisted it did not bomb the hospital, while President Biden said he is confident, based on U.S. intelligence, that an Israeli airstrike was not to blame. Biden announced today that the U.S. is providing $100 million in humanitarian assistance for the Palestinian people in Gaza and the West Bank. For the Associated Press, Egypt's president has also agreed to open its border crossing to allow in trucks with humanitarian aid. President Biden is now on his way home, and tomorrow he will deliver a primetime address to discuss the U.S. response to the Hamas terrorist attacks against Israel and Russia's war against Ukraine. NBC's Richard Engel has the latest. This is the explosion that has shaken the Middle East. New video shows that deadly explosion at a hospital in Gaza City that reportedly killed hundreds and sparked protests from Iran to Yemen to Lebanon, where demonstrators directed their anger against the United States, Israel's main backer. Security forces in Beirut used water cannons and tear gas to disperse crowds outside the U.S. Embassy. The United States pulled out of its wars in the Middle East, but now could be heading back into one. In the West Bank, Palestinians today dragged out the barricades and slung rocks at Israeli soldiers. There weren't many, mostly teenagers. Israeli troops kept their distance, but when the stone throwers got too close, the soldiers opened fire, sending medical crews rushing in. And here's one more injured being taken away. The Israelis are picking them off with what appears to be rubber bullets at this stage. No one was seriously injured here today, but a new generation of Palestinians is taking to the streets. While Israel and Hamas are blaming each other for the hospital explosion, a new Palestinian uprising could be starting. Today, our crew filmed at the Gaza hospital site and saw families collecting what they could from the debris amid charred cars and backpacks and bags on the ground. Disaster. Disaster. Impact on... uh children on a woman's suddenly there were lights in the sky and when we looked up a missile fell this man says i covered my face while friends close to me were killed this place was a safe haven for women and children who fled israeli shelling near the hospital this doctor says children were torn to pieces other hospitals in gaza already running low on supplies are now struggling to keep up. These wounded all have needed intensive care facilities and ventilators. 
water was running out before I left and the electricity now started to, to, to run out. The generators were running out of diesel. Iran, which backs both Hamas and Hezbollah, is working to fan the rage even further. Iran's president calling on Muslim nations to isolate Israel, impose an oil embargo, and bring revenge. NBC's Richard Engel, thank you. Joining me now is Nayara Haq, a former senior State Department advisor and former White House senior director under President Obama. Nayara, my friend, thank you for being here. Um, the challenge uh, is enormous um, because the anger and the rage um, about this bombing of this hospital, however, whoever did it, isn't one of the challenges here is that there isn't really a trusted voice who can answer the question who did it. No one wants to take Hamas's word for it, certainly. The IDF uh, and the Israeli military has had issues. There was an American journalist, a Palestinian-American journalist, who was killed. What they said about it initially turned out not to be true. And there have been, you know, bombings of UN-related schools, et cetera, in the past. So they're not being believed either. And then the U.S. repeated, um, including President Biden— that story about 40 beheaded babies that then the IDF could not confirm and was unconfirmed, but he said it in a speech out loud, and that fanned even more flames. So the challenge here is who are people going to listen to? Well, in this information environment, the first piece of information you get in any intelligence assessment is often wrong. You have to wait 24 hours, 48 hours to get dig in, literally in some cases, dig into the rubble and get answers on who did what, where, when, why, how. But we expect answers immediately. And we expect them in our phones right away. And that's what the communicators and the president are responding to. The, the challenge is that the, the United States has always been a strong ally of Israel. And that has been defined as a strong ally of whichever government is there. So you could have 75% of Israelis upset with Netanyahu and not agreeing with his decisions, but the United States is in a position where it defends the government that exists. And so that has created a challenge of outside actors not looking at the United States as impartial on yeah. human rights, or even domestically now, people not looking to the president or the State Department as impartial. Uh, today, the United States vetoed uh, a resolution that seemed completely benign to condemn all violence against civilians in the Israeli-Hamas war and to urge humanitarian aid to Palestinians in Gaza, saying it was too early to craft an appropriate Security Council response to the crisis. Um, England, uh, the UK, and Russia uh, declined to vote. But the United States vetoing that it does. It seems so counterproductive, some of the things that, that we're doing. The, Why do that? The United States and the U.N. has a very interesting role to play because the U.N. is where everybody comes, including Iran, and everybody has an equal voice. On the Security Council, you also have Russia, which has refused to condemn yeah. Hamas's terrorist attack. So the United States takes the role at the U.N. of defending Israel from all of the surrounding folks who would like Israel to not exist. But again, in this moment, when everybody is getting information, people are looking to for that information, not in a um, agnostic way. They're yeah. looking at it to affirm what they already think. And, and I mean, and the United States also, you know, Iraq and WMDs didn't really give us a ton of credibility in the region. Um, so 
if we're not credible, then who well, and, is? And nine, the post-9-11 era changed how the United States uh, was look at, looked at on the world stage, right? Yeah. Yes, it was a strong and firm response that also resulted in a 20-year war in Afghanistan yeah. that we pulled out of without any sense yeah. of what was accomplished. And, and that's, torture in Iraq. And that's the concern about what might happen for Israel if it does not have a strategy that goes beyond turning Gaza into a parking lot. Uh, let me show you some of the protests at the Capitol today. Um, about 500 Jewish Americans showed up demanding a ceasefire. This is some of that video here. Uh, a few people did get arrested in those protests. You're seeing those kinds of protests, often led by Jewish Americans, demanding a ceasefire. And those are happening in New York. They're happening in D.C. Um, you're seeing Palestinian Americans also quite angry. Uh, the president had a not very pleasant call on Monday with U.S. Arab leaders What's happening? Because it feels very post 9-11, pre-Iraq, peace movements are breaking out. Yeah, and, and the, the coverage of that is important to show that there is a sense in the United States of alternative, what could be considered progressive policy, and that there is unity in that. And that that is also represented in Israel. You have many of the victims, of families of the victims saying, don't use the death of my family member to justify more and more killing. So there is a, a diverse array of yeah. opinions on what the response should be. But the challenge that we've seen is with, with the United States and how it's navigated Israel and Palestine politics for the last 20 years has been to leave it at the status quo, to not really try to do anything because the same leaders are in place. Netanyahu is still there, Abbas, Hamas, the same people who never really came together to solve the problem yeah. are still there. So what is what is a Biden supposed to do in this moment other than try to minimize the damage? Yeah, uh, it is uh, what one what I call a mess. Uh, and it is deadly and uh, and terrifying and tragic. A lot of tragedy on Nairhawk. Thank you for helping us make it make sense. Up next, my brilliant pal and colleague Rachel Maddow joins me to talk about Jim Jordan's epic failures. Palestine, uh, President Biden in Israel, Trump's gag orders, voting rights, and her incredible new book about America's historic and ongoing fight against fascism. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that, that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. OK, 
Okay, permit me to present some rare good news for democracy. Over the weekend, 73% of the Polish population braved long lines at polling places to reject their right-wing government. After an eight-year grip on power, they opted instead for a three-party coalition of opposition parties, which will now have to cobble together a parliamentary majority. And Applebaum writes in The Atlantic, quote, the victory of the Polish opposition proves that autocratic populism can be defeated, even after an unfair election. Nothing is inevitable about the rise of autocracy or the decline of democracy. It is important to keep that in mind as we prepare for an election a year from now that will determine whether we remain a democracy. And who better to talk about all of that than our very own Rachel Maddow, host of the eponymous Rachel Maddow show. And Rachel Maddow, there is no show at the end of it, which is what makes it super cool, and author of the new book, (laughs) Prequel, An American Fight Against Fascism. As I live and breathe, let's toast our books because oh, we have two. Thank we you very much. One. Cheers. Boom, we're gonna Mine's the one that's all marked up with my initials all over it. It's we like, do uh, the same thing. The sad thing about same, it is you and I deface books. I can't lend people books because they're all dog-eared <laughs> with like notes and stuff. And I'm like, if you just don't look at the notes and where I underline, go ahead and enjoy it. There is a lot of ways in which you and I are kind of intellectual <laughs> sisters. But the first time we ever talked about a book together yeah. and I saw the way you had destroyed yours, <laughs> I was like, I know we're not genetically related, but clearly, clearly. we are partly the same person. Clearly. Because and the obsession with history, thing. like a lot. We go in the yes. same wormholes. It's wild. But yeah. so let's talk about this because the Polish, the, the Polish election actually made me feel hopeful. Yeah. And my name is ironic, so usually I'm not hopeful. <laughs> I'm usually <laughs> incredibly pessimistic. But I'm like, okay, Poland's been a concern. They came out, they used the sort of standard process of voting to oust their autocracy. Yes. Does that make you hopeful? It does. For us. Absolutely. I mean, we have seen what happened in Poland. I mean, I think also don't don't sleep on the fact that one of the things that happened in Poland, the one of the ways they activated the electorate in Poland was by full stop banning abortion. And Poland was a very conservative country that had a lot of restrictions on abortion, but they went whole hog with that ban and it electrified the Polish electorate. And that was part of the reason with women in the lead Mm -hmm. that they said no to that government that had started taking apart Poland as a democracy. They had started taking apart what makes a country, a democratic country, turning it into an autocracy. They'd had eight years of work on that. It'll be hard, actually, in Poland when the new coalition government takes over for them to be able to govern and operate, given how much of the rest of their government was undermined and taken over by the would-be autocrats who they just beat. But it worked. And I, that's, in a a way, that's also the story of Jair Bolsonaro getting Mm -hmm. voted out in Brazil. It is the story of Donald Trump getting voted out in 2020. It is the story of a lot of the bad guys in Congress who were working with a Nazi agent who are the center of this book in 1944 in the 42, 44, 46 elections. Those guys got voted out once people knew what they were doing. I have a lot of faith in democracy. That's why I believe it's worth fighting. Yeah. I mean, the the, the reason I'm so obsessed with voting is that it's the most boring answer to how Mm -hmm. you fix these sort of challenges in the country. But it's actually the answer. And if you let democracy, I mean, 73 percent turnout. That is where they had more turnout in Poland for this election than they did for the election in 1989, where they voted out communism. There you go. I mean, that tells you how electrified those people were. Okay, now for the bad news. (laughs) (laughs) Now for the joy. (laughs) Welcome to DC. (laughs) 
Thank, welcome to D.C., where everything is bad. Um, because what's happening in our government right now is so chaotic and and, and insane, and at a really bad time. Yeah. When you've got the world blowing up, we do not have a Congress that is functioning because the House of Representatives has no speaker. And for those who are not like into the geekery of civics, it means they can't bring a bill to the floor. They can't do the normal functions of government, and the government will shut down in 40 days. What's happening right now? Number one, does it shock you, like it shouldn't, that Matt Gates bumped off the speaker with no plan and that Republicans can't coalesce around anyone? Jim Jordan, the flame-throwing insurrectionist, he got you know, fewer votes this time than he did the first time around. There doesn't seem to be a plan. There does not seem to be a plan, but that may have been the Matt Gaetz plan. Maybe that's plan. the plan. I mean, the, if the idea is that part of what's going on in the Republican Party is that there is effectively a a a group that is acting like nihilists. What does nihilist mean? It means you really don't care about the outcome. It's destroy without without reckoning with what's going to be left in the rubble. Well, you know, if you're trying to replace our form of government with a strongman form of government where yeah. the Congress doesn't matter and the judiciary is just a tool of the strongman leader and the whole rule of law doesn't exist, it's just another tool that he uses to reward his friends and punish his enemies. I mean, then, yeah, effectively abolishing the House of Representatives as a governing body is the point. Yeah. Not having a new idea for speaker. Yeah. That's like a benefit, not a not a bug. Yeah. And so I feel like the the way that we got here goes through the MAGA caucus and the Republican Party. I think that we should see them as effectively a nihilist sure. part of, of our politics. But now the Republicans do have to figure out something to do. And this thing that emerged today where they're going to say that there's not a speaker anymore. Right. We now have a temporary speaker, Correct. which means we don't have to vote for him. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that yeah, we, like, we actually have a constitution. Yeah. We, have, like, just make it up. we have rules about these things. It's yeah. like saying somebody's a substitute teacher right. when they're there from day one of the school year all the way through to graduation. They're not a substitute teacher. Right. You need to actually have a speaker. And if you guys can't elect one, let the Democrats do it. But the, and the thing that's so, to me, sad about the Republican Party in this uh, iteration is that there six of them could fix this. Yeah. Six of them could just vote for Hakeem Jeffries. Now, you may not love Hakeem Jeffries' policies if you are a Republican, but at least he'd make the place function. Or they could come up with somebody that Democrats could send a coalition. Because Hakeem Jeffries, he can do a vote count. He could send them 20 people if they needed it to mm -hmm. elect a speaker who's reasonable, but they won't take either option. The supposed moderates in the party just won't do it because they're terrified of Donald Trump, the threats that they've been getting from Jordan, the attempts for him to be Donald Trump. Yeah. Number one, the Donald Trump Act only works for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So no one else can replicate that but him. So they have a choice of either rejecting the whole idea of Trump and not act and pretending he doesn't exist and functioning or this. And they're choosing chaos. The, 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 Joy, I feel like the thing that we need to start getting our heads around here, though, is that if if the point of this whole process starting was to make the House of Representatives no longer exist as a governing part of the U.S. federal government, that may be the result that we have for a long time. Yeah. There isn't a way out of it for them. Unless they're going to do some power sharing thing or some trick play with the Democrats, there isn't a way out of it. And having Patrick McHenry be, be named speaker without yeah. voting for him does not work in the American system of government. That is not a way out of this. And so uh, sometimes things go slow until they go fast. Yeah. And one of the things that has happened is that the Republican Party has effectively abolished half of Congress. Yeah. And that is how we are living right now. And there is 
no easy way out of it. And we may need to start thinking about what that means in very extreme terms. Yeah. I mean, they've they've effectively done it. They've 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 made part of the U.S. government go away. Now what? And the thing about it is that and this is this is kind of a perfect setup for for talking about the book, because when this when the when the version of right far right wing movement, you know, politicians participated in, te- in attempting to overthrow our dem- democratic form of government and replace it with a fascist form of government. The difference between them and these clowns we have now is they had a plan. They had a thing they wanted. And maybe what's saving us is that these guys don't have a plan and they don't have a thing they want. We're going to talk about that because Rachel is sticking around because she's going to tell us more about her fascinating new book on fascism in America. Don't you don't want to miss it. Stay right there. We'll be right back. We're going to make America great again. We're going to take back our culture and we're going to make America great again. Next November, we're going to make America great again. We have heard it a million times, Donald Trump's signature slogan, make America great again. And I personally have always wondered when the again is, because whether he knows it or not, the Trump era sure does look a lot like the 1930s or 40s. It is a period in our country's history marked by World War, the Great Depression, and a fair amount of political demagoguery. We're often told that America came together in that era and united against fascism and swooped in right away to join forces with the good guys to help stop the Nazis and save the day. Except that's not exactly how it went down. In Rachel Maddow's new book, Prequel, An American Fight Against Fascism, she details the story of what really happened and how the U.S actually faced its own homegrown threat to overthrow democracy and install a Hitler-like dictatorship. She writes, the great American fight against fascism that we have inherited as a cornerstone in our country's moral foundation is a fight that didn't happen only overseas in the 1940s. Americans fought on both sides of that divide here at home, too. And their stories will curl your hair. (laughs) Back with me is Rachel Maddow, host the Rachel Maddow show. Uh, and, and it is a great book. And I love Thank the you. fact that it is a, a written version that expands upon your amazing podcast mm. that went into some of these same area, same eras. I guess my first question would be, how is it that of all of these, all of these characters who came together to essentially overthrow our government and install a, a sort of fascist dictator, how did they just fall out of history? We remember Henry Ford a little, but we don't fully but we don't remember these people. Yeah. You know, and I think about these current people. And I wonder, are we going to like forget who Matt Gates and Jim Jordan are? Like uh, the, the Rachel <laughs> going to be a Matt Gates postage stamp right. someday. I yeah. will remember Trump. But yeah, how, how did it's, they fall out of history? It's it's a really good question. And it actually relates to what we were just talking about before in terms of how democracy is a boring answer. But it yes. is the answer. Yeah. I mean, democracy is the end. It's a thing we're trying to preserve. But it is also the means by which we obtain political outcomes in this country. If you're standing up for democracy, that means you have to want to do everything by by democratic means. Right. You have to triple down on it. And one of the good news stories about what happened in the 40s is that these these guys in Congress, in the Senate, who were hooked up with this Nazi operation in the United States, they were using their congressional offices with a Nazi agent to propagandize the American people. Um, they got caught for it. And we have to reckon with the fact that they never got put on trial for it. They right. probably should have. But they did get exposed for what they had done. The legal the, the legal prosecution of people who were involved in in that effort to allegedly overthrow the government, the the activism, the journalism of that time, the regular Americans who got involved in trying to stop them, they exposed it. And when voters had a choice about what to do with those members of Congress, they kicked them out. And so after they lost their 
jobs in Congress and their jobs in the Senate, they became losers. And we forgot about them, even though they had been among the most powerful people in Congress. They'd been household names, some of them. And so, you know, Gerald Nye was going to be presidential timber at some point. We don't remember Gerald Nye at all. And it's because he lost his seat in 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 disgrace because of his ties to this plot. There's another thing that I think people people understand Nazism as a foreign thing. And they often forget the American components of it. There's a fascinating piece of your book. I'm going to read a little bit of you to you. Uh, (laughs) This is when Heinrich Krieger was sent to the American South to take notes for the Fuhrer. He was quick to see how the United States could provide a sort of conceptual prototype for new German law. Jim Crow laws segregating black Americans and stripping them of legal and political rights were just one of the many bulwarks in American law constructed for the protection of white people from the, quote, lower races. He was able to conduct a comprehensive study of more than 30 states whose laws and courts forced black Americans into second-class citizenship. The Nazis learned from us. The Nazis sent a young lawyer over here in 1933. They sent him to the University of Arkansas Law School, and he did a survey of American race law because the Nazis were absolutely enamored of this idea that you can have a large minority or set of minorities in this country and a constitution that says everybody's equal, But those minorities, those disfavored minorities don't get equal citizenship rights. And so how can you how can they they wanted to know how can the United States be looked on as a beacon around the world as an egalitarian country that's not some sort of seen as a rogue state or some human rights offender. But yet there's people within their bounds who do not have the benefits of citizenship. They love that idea. And they used Heinrich Krieger's research to inform the Nuremberg laws, which stripped Jewish Germans of their citizenship. They absolutely learned from us. Hitler thought that the, that lynching, what he called popular justice in the United States was another important thing for the Nazis to study in terms of how these things can be look good on paper, but still work out in practice the way they wanted them to. It, it is fascinating. They studied us. It, it's, it's, it, and it's terrifying to think how much of the ideas that we know are loathsome that were happening in Germany actually originated here. Yeah. There, I mean, you talk for, about everything from everything from book bans, things we're seeing now, book bans, saying that the, there's dirty things in the books. We had to root out the sort of wickedness that's in these books that were, you know, corrupting the minds of, of children. That happened then as now. Mm-hmm. Um, po- politicians using their power in order to foment a revolution against the government, the idea of overthrowing Roosevelt, the idea of throwing the it's all it all happened before political pressure on the Justice Department to stop investigations and prosecutions of people who are involved in that kind of violence. It's yes. I mean, it's there's there's I mean, one of these Dixiecrat anti-Semite pro-fascist members of Congress, a senator from North Carolina, wanted to build a wall to keep out Jewish refugees. He said, we're going to we're going to build a wall that nobody can scale. Even the term. Uh, what is it? Make America Great Again? Well, America, and America first. first. I'm sorry. Not yeah. Make America Great Again, but America First, right? Came from that era. Okay. Rachel Maddow, the hostage situation continues. <laughs> I'm going to keep you more about it because I actually have one non-political question to oh, no. ask you after the break. So I'll stay right there. Oh, no. That's a tease. I didn't study. <laughs> oh, no. Something human. <laughs> We are back with Rachel Maddow. Okay, I have a non-political question to ask you. Okay. I was just in Philly uh, last night with our good friend Chris Hayes yeah. uh, doing his Why Is This Happening podcast. I walk out and this couple comes up to me. This happens to me a lot. And they said, we love you. We love Chris Hayes. We love Rachel Maddow. They, everybody comes oh. up to me, loves you. And they said, but you know what the thing we miss about her show? 
we miss the cocktail hour. Uh. We miss it. We are facing a hell of a year next year between yeah. the election and the trials that are coming up. What's the one cocktail? <laughs> <laughs> What's in it? How do I make it? Give me the. <laughs> Listen, I, I. What do will, I need to drink? <laughs> I will say that I get asked the question about the cocktail moment all the time, right? All the time. It has been years since I have done it, and boy, are people still hankering for a drink. But I stopped doing it honestly because I felt like you know what, the audience that is coming to us, coming to you and me, coming yeah. to MSNBC in primetime and wanting to sit down with their friends and hear about the world. You know what? We're already drinking too much. <laughs> we do not like drinking. Alcohol is a Listen, lot of things. It is not medicine. It is not. It will not make you, it will not make anything better. Nope, it will, might make you feel better in the short run, but then it will right. keep you up and not give you a not good night of sleep. Very true. And so I feel like, you know, when we are in a calmer place as a country, we will yeah. go back to drinking together on primetime on MSNBC Man. at the end of the week. But I'm, I'm holding my fire until then. And, and you know what, what I love about, uh, uh, we say scaring is caring. That's kind of our, our sub theme of our show. Mm -hmm. um, but the good thing about your work is that it is scary, but you always have a note of hope in it yeah. that we can get out of this. And I think that's an important moment. Americans, Let's books one more time. Americans before us faced worse and did better. And, and we can better. learn from them. We can learn from yeah. them. Um, the book, here it is. Prequel. I'm going to hold it up again. <laughs> you're you're going to want this. Uh, an American fight against fascism. Thank you, Rachel. Maddow. God bless you. Thank you, Joy, Thank you for being here. Yeah. Bye. Boom. <laughs> for more on Rachel's new book, prequel, An American Fight Against Fascism, and to get tickets for her book tour appearances, go to msnbc.com slash prequel and do it quick. Those tickets are selling out super fast. That is tonight's readout. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. 